Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Amen. You can grab a seat. Oh, Chandler. Oh. I uh, I heard a rumor. It is indeed my birthday. I heard a rumor. I mean, I, I think Micah Sewell and I share a birthday. But Sarah, do you also have a birthday in the room? Okay. I got lots of birthday buddies. Um, and I don't particularly, as weird as it is, because I'm often in front of people, I don't particularly love attention. So that's also great. Um, no, last week, uh, if you were here, Dave was with us. And one of the things that I really appreciated about Dave was that he spent some time on the front end talking about how you get, like, you get to be who you want to be in this season of life. Like some of you coming in as transfers especially, some of you are coming in as freshmen especially. It's like you get to walk into a new season and choose who you want to be. It's like when you start a video game, even you non-video game people in here, you're going to know what I'm talking about. There's like the character selection screen, right? You know, you choose Mario Kart, you're choosing who you want to race on, or, Super, you know, Smash Brothers. People still play Smash, right? So, like, you're choosing in that moment. And I've always felt like in college, especially, it's totally character selection screen time for you, where the identity that you grew up in, the family that you grew up in, you walk into a new space with a new friend group and in just a new set of circumstances that you can decide in some ways, you know what? I don't have to be some of the roles that I used to be. And so it's like you have this, these, this fresh set of tracks in the snow that you can chart forward. And some of you who are like, wait, I'm not a freshman or a transfer student. It's still true for you because I, it's still true for me. One of the things I love being around you guys is I'm reminded of that. It doesn't let me grow too old. Even, <laughs> I've been around the sun a few times, all right? It doesn't let me get too old because I feel like I'm in that with you where God continually brings me back to, no, there's new territories that we get to chart together and you are not defined necessarily by what you failed in or succeeded in last year or what came before. I love that for you. I love this season of life for you. I hope you feel it. I hope you sense it, that you don't have to be trapped in the places that you've come, that there's freedom in what sits out ahead of you. And that honestly is right where I'm headed tonight. We're talking about uh, identity. We're talking about belief. And what's crazy about this is if I go out on campus and I grab the average person and I say, hey, um, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about whether you were created or not? What do you believe about whether there's an afterlife or not? I think a small percentage of people on this campus, not tiny, but, I mean, it's significant. You fall in, probably fall into this category would say, that matters a lot to me. And I do believe that I was created and I'm put here for a purpose. And I think that there is also a contingent of people on campus that would say, I'm certain that, I was, that, that there is no God in the universe, and I, I, I'm very confident in that. I think the vast majority, though, would say this. Why does it matter? Was like, uh, whether God created me? I don't have, if that works for you, if you need to think about that, fantastic. I'm glad that works for you or that you need to think about religion or whatever that is. But, but it doesn't make a difference to what I eat for dinner tonight. It doesn't make a difference as to the friend groups that I find. It doesn't make a difference as to what I study. It doesn't make a difference to what I do for a living. Belief doesn't. 
Well, I'm here to tell you tonight, I'm going to make the case that belief matters a lot. As a matter of fact, it drives just about everything. If you've been around for a number of years, you've seen this before. I haven't used it in a long time, but I have used it before. But I want you to see this flow because I think it's really, really important. And I believe that much of life flows through this category in terms of who you are and your identity. What you start with a belief, that belief, that thing that you hold inside of you that you believe that it's true, it, it has no choice but to funnel itself into your thoughts, the way that you think and the way that you understand the world. And the way that you think and understand the world will determine the decisions that you make which in turn will determine the consequences that you live in all the time, all the time. So like, let's say, let me just walk you through some of this, and I'll, I'm going to spend more time than I want to in this, but I think it's really important to know where we're headed tonight. Let's say, for example, that you are a cheater, okay? Not talking relationships, I'm talking um, class, okay? And let's say that in high school and maybe during COVID, I mean, like, I know, you guys, I know what cheating was like in COVID, all right? I did like a little mini poll on my own, and somewhere around 100% of students were cheating during that era, okay? But like, let's say that you develop this belief throughout that season, because maybe in your friend group that didn't matter. Maybe in your school, your teachers were just like, you know what, it's COVID, I don't care either. Just get the assignment done, we'll, just, we'll all call it a day, all right? So you have developed this belief that plagiarism doesn't matter at all, and you drag that belief with you into this university, and you're doing a paper now, and you grab something you find online, and then you get a follow-up, you turn that in, you get a follow-up email from your teacher that's like, hey, you actually need to meet with me in a disciplinary committee tomorrow, all right? Because that could, that could get you expelled. And so this belief that you had come to develop in your life that cheating isn't that big of a deal, that, it's, that it doesn't really matter, and that teachers even kind of like wave it off because they don't care either. So you've developed a belief in this that this isn't all that severe that doesn't match the reality that you're actually in. And so that's affect affected the way that you have thought about it. It affects the way that you do a paper. Once you turn that paper in, now suddenly you're living in all these consequences that you had no idea where they came from. Well, they came from a wrong belief that you held. All of it flowed back from that beginning thing of, oh, this isn't a big deal, where that doesn't match the reality that, that you're actually in. Let me give you a very different example. I talked a couple weeks ago about the Philippines. Um, I've been there a few times. Let me tell you something bizarre about the Philippines. Um, in World War II, we helped them escape Japanese occupation, which was t terrible for them. And they felt deeply indebted to the United States, and we became a strong ally with the Philippines. It's also a very impoverished, poor country. Or, you know, and it's, it's gotten wealthier over time, and so it's not quite as third world as it used to be. But it's one of the few places in the world where Americans are held in very high esteem. And so you go there, and people want to honor you. They believe there is a belief that you are more important than them. They believe that you are a first-class citizen and they are a second-class citizen because you're from the West, okay? I don't like that. You shouldn't like that. But that is the reality there. So let me give you an example, <clears throat> a real example. You get on a bus in the Philippines, all Filipinos around you, and an old woman, very old, who's like there's no remaining seats, so you're standing. She sees that you're standing, and she, even though she has a hard time standing up, will stand up and get out of her seat and stand somewhere else so that you can sit down. Okay? Here's the problem. If you don't sit in that seat, 
everyone on that bus is going to be ticked at you. How do you feel about that? Super weird, right? Because you're like, I don't, I'm not a first-class citizen, and they're not second-class citizens. Well, that belief in their culture that because you are wealthy and they are not, and because you're affluent and you're Western and they are not, makes you more important than they are, creates the way that they think about that relationship. It creates the action of that woman getting out of her seat and giving it to you, and it creates the consequence of the awkwardness of you having to decide if you want to make a whole bus mad at you by not taking her seat. Weird. All right, let's get more real world. What if you grew up in a home where your value was determined by what you contributed? In other words, when you did your chores, when you did your stuff, when you kept your stuff clean, the peace seemed to be kept in your family. But when you didn't, if you neglected that stuff, it seemed like you had no relationship with your parents or with your siblings or you fill in the blank. And so you develop this belief system over time that says, I'm valued when I do the right stuff, and that's where my value sits. Well, what does that create in your thought life? Am I doing enough? I see that mom is ticked today. Can I help in this particular situation? I see that dad's really upset. Can I make this happen? And so you're dancing around all of this stuff, trying desperately just to make everybody happy and worried that it's your fault if stuff is falling apart. The consequence, anxiety, stress, depression, or maybe that's your church experience. Maybe that's what you grew up in believing that God was like, that he was pleased with you when you behaved and super angry with you when you didn't, and grace really wasn't a part of your world, and you didn't understand how those things worked. And that belief system that you have made its way into your thought life, shame, grief, guilt, despair, And you can just see right down the line of of how this works. Maybe you were in a dating relationship with a guy and the only way that he would give you affection or attention was if you showed more skin or let him do more. It's like, what does that teach you in that belief system? Teaches you that my worth is tied into how much sex I give away. That's what that does. And so you can see how that works its way down the line. I begin to think that that's that's what I have to do. I start to do those things. I live in remorse or like, is this my only value in this world? Now, in, well, I, I shouldn't even just say in the church. In the world, we like to look at these last two if we see a problem and we like to focus there. I do it all the time as a parent. So in other words, we see an action that we don't like, a behavior that we don't like, or a consequence, and we're like, we need to fix that. I need to fix that. So somebody has an alcohol addiction. That's their behavior. Somebody has a pornography addiction, and that's their behavior. And we become focused on how do we fix that behavior. I am telling you, if it's being driven by a belief and you don't go all the way back there, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Because it's being driven by something deeper that sits within you. And that's where we're headed tonight. That's why belief really matters. What you believe about yourself, what you believe about the God of the universe, whether you know it or not, changes the way that you think, changes the way you perceive the world, changes the way you make decisions, changes the consequences that you live in every day, right down the line, every time. Our text tonight... Uh, is in the Gospel of John. 
and I'm super excited about the next two weeks. Um, I mean, it's going to be a little bit weird because we've got four sessions of fall retreat that we're going to hit in between now and then. But this is Peter part one this week, and in a week I'm going to come back and talk about Peter part two. We're going to talk about the very first time that Jesus and Peter interact as a turning point, and then next week we're going to talk about the last time that Jesus and Peter interact as a turning point, both of them turning points in Peter's life. But here's our text for tonight. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist who's talking about. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there's the Lamb of God. So he prophesies in that moment, that is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. So I want you to just notice in this, John actually, John the uh, uh, Baptist has gotten pretty popular at this point. He has disciples. He's not trying to keep them. He's not trying to build his own movement. He's like, that's the Messiah. And his disciples leave him to start following Jesus, which makes sense. It's what John the Baptist wants, but there's no, there's no, uh, (laughs) like he's not trying to grab them and pull them back. He realizes that's the point of his ministry. So Jesus looked around and saw them following him and said, what do you want? (laughs) That's what he asked him. And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon, and he told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus, and looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now that phrasing might be a little bit weird to you, so you need to understand that Simon, Cephas, and Peter are the same person (laughs) in this, okay? He goes by Simon. Cephas is Aramaic, which is the language they were all speaking at the time, but Peter is the Greek name because the New Testament's written in Greek. So this, what's happening in this moment, and I, I don't want the weirdness to be lost on you, when Peter walks up to Jesus, and the, if we truly believe this is the first time that they had crossed paths, that they had met, and this is well before he asks, this is probably months before he asks Peter to follow him as a disciple, but he looks at Simon, Peter, he looks at Simon and says, ooh, your name's Simon, but you're going to be called Peter. That's weird. That's a weird introduction, right? If tonight you walked up to me and you're like, I'm like, hey, I, I, know, I know your name's Stephanie, but uh, I'm going to call you Sequoia, okay? <laughs> that's super weird. But Jesus looks right at Peter, and that's what he does. I see who you are, but this is who you really are. That's the interaction I want to talk about tonight. Jesus looking at Peter and seeing who he could be, not just who he is, not just who is right in front of him. What a crazy passage about identity. All right, so as we talk about this question, what is identity and where it comes from, I've got to get just a little bit nerdy with you, okay? And I don't mean to turn this in. I know we're in a classroom space. I don't mean to to get too classroomy with you. 
Um, but there are, I, I need to know that we're all speaking the same language because there is a worldview that, that has just been the air that you breathe forever that's called secular humanism that most of the movies that you've watched, that has, the people who are writing those movies, that's the perspective they're coming from. Most of the professors that you've had, teachers that you've had, music that you've listened to, it's not, it's not a giant majority, I would say, in our culture, but it's certainly the majority of what you take in in the average day. And here are the values of secular humanism. Within that perspective, there is no God, and humans are alone in the world. That's what a second, I mean, even if they wouldn't admit to being a secular humanist, that's just the perspective. This is the common perspective in our culture, all right? What's our purpose in the world? We create our own meaning and purpose, because if there is no God, you look and you say, well, I need to create meaning and purpose in my own world then, and therefore our legacy is making the world a better place. And so, Instead of turning to something religious, it's like we create our own religion out of the causes. Why? Because you have a limited amount of time on this planet, and there's nothing else. You're going to blink out of existence at the end of it, and so you better leave a legacy, and you better create that meaning and purpose for yourself as you go. Belief in God is seen as an old myth that we've outgrown. As a matter of fact, religion is a barrier to accomplishing this. All right? And then Lastly, with secular humanism, there's this sense of optimism. It is an optimistic worldview. We can solve our own problems, right? We can solve all the world, world's problems through education, technology, medicine. Like humans have created these problems, but humans can solve these problems. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Interstellar. I adore that movie. It's, it is incredible. But the message of Interstellar could not be more aligned with this. There's this question through the whole movie of, of is there something supernatural that's guiding us? And you get to the end, and the end of the movie is like, nope, it was us. It's always been us. It is us now. It will always be us. We will rescue us. And it was like, uh, <laughs> gross. But that message is all around you, echoed over and over and over again. You hear it all over the place, so much so that I don't think you recognize it. We, as, if we are fish in a fishbowl, that's our water, right? We just, it, it is what we take in. It is what we understand. I believe, though, among your generation, there is a whisper of something else starting to make its way in that isn't secular humanism. It's, it's actually called nihilism. Its values are similar, but I'll, let me see if you recognize it here. It starts the same way. There is no God. Humans are alone in the world. But there is no purpose. And therefore, creating purpose is futile. There's no reason to do it. Why would you bother? Belief in God or anything is a distraction because life itself is meaningless. And there is definitely to that, if you haven't picked up on it, a sense of pessimism. It's not possible to make the world better, so why bother trying? This is not a very rosy outlook. <laughs> not a very rosy worldview. And I, if I can give you a mascot for nihilism, he would be this. Okay? Anybody familiar? If you've seen the Mario movie, Lumily might be the best character in it, all right? Let me just give you four quotes from him in the Mario movie. I need to remind you as I say this, I am watching this movie with my nine-year-old daughter, okay? And these are the quotes that are coming from this character. Time, like hope, is an illusion. There is no sunshine, only darkness. 
Everything's over now, and all that's left is you in an infinite void. And the only hope is the sweet relief of death. Okay? Cute character, right? This is nihilism. And there, there is a sense of meaninglessness that we don't have identity, that we can't find identity, because there is none to be found. You came from nothing, you will return to nothing, and so what is life? And if you think that this is just a joke in this, I mean, I, I came across this in the meme world the other day. I finally got my average resting heart down to 65 beats per minute, only 65 more to go. <laughs> you guys, you see jokes like this all the time. This is nihilism. And the joke there that sits underneath it is what's left but death. So in secular humanism, you have this picture that there is no God, there isn't any meaning, but as humans, we better create this meaning for ourselves, and we better create a legacy for ourselves because there's this sense of optimism that I can change the world and I better do it fast. And as you see people lock into that with religious zeal. Why? Because it's the only meaning and purpose that they have. I have got to get this cause across the finish line before I die, because that's the legacy I will be leaving. It is my meaning and my purpose in this world. But again, you look at nihilism, and it's a whole different beast, because there's a sense of pessimism that says, why even bother? The economy's down. It'll never rebound. My generation is stuck in infinite debt, and so bring on the sweet relief of death. It's like a sort of a joke, but it's not. You catch those whispers of pessimism in your generation starting to come out through what, what's traditionally called nihilism. Listen, the Bible teaches a different way of viewing the world completely. It looks like this. God made this world and continues to work in it. We don't believe that, that this, this universe is without a creative mind that created us. We believe that he created us. Our purpose is largely defined by who God says we are in relation to him. We believe that identity, I know that this is kind of wordy, but we believe identity is a collaborative process between us and the God of the universe. In other words, God partners with us to help us understand who we are. I could say it's all him, and it is mostly him, but for whatever reason, he allows us to be a part of that journey with him. And last, there is a sense of realism that this world has fallen but that we partner with God in the restoration of it. So while in secular humanism there is this sense of optimism of we can fix all the problems, and in nihilism there's this sense of everything is so broken that it will never be fixed, and so it's all meaningless, we talk in a Christian worldview about we were created in the image of God, and this world has fallen and broken, but it will be redeemed, and he wants us to be a part of that redemption process. So when he talks about loving each other and restoring each other and bring healing and purpose, like that's a, not just a part of heaven later. It's a part of now. It's a part of your life now. You have meaning and purpose in this life, in your family, in your friendships, in your own life. God wants to do that redemptive work in you, through you, now. That is very different than the other two things that I just talked about. And I think as we lean in a little bit closer to our text, we're going to see it in a little bit different way. Because I want to remember who Peter is right now. And some of you may not know that. Peter's a, a blue-collar worker. I mean, he's, he owns a fishing business. And it's, it's not going poorly. I mean, like when we see him in Scripture, he's doing all right. 
in the fishing business, but he is a dude who lives on a fishing boat and smells like fish, and that's what he works in day in and day out. He's not super intelligent. If you know Peter's personality, he is hilarious to listen to, to follow. He's, he is that guy, and you have one in your friend group, all right, who has no filter, who acts before he thinks all the time, and so everything about him is just out there on the table, for better or for worse. Sometimes it's great, and the stuff that come, comes out of him is wonderful. Sometimes it's awful, but it's always out there, all the time. And if you're like, I don't have anybody like that in my friend group, <laughs> then it's you. It's you. Um, so just to give you a couple of examples of, of amazing moments with Peter, in Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his own death. Now, I need you to understand Jesus is saying, I am going to go to the cross and die, which is his ultimate purpose to redeem all of humanity. And Peter is the only one who speaks out. And he's like, that's never going to happen. So he rebukes Jesus in front of everybody. He rebukes the Messiah's prophecy in front of everybody. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. Which is a pretty good counter-rebuke, if I might, if I might say so. In that moment, because Peter is saying, I am going to keep that from happening, even though that was the purpose of why Jesus came in the first place. Do you remember John 13? Jesus, this is at the very end of his ministry, so toward the end of his life. It's the last week he's alive. He has one final moment with his disciples as a teachable moment, and he gets down on his knees, his hands and knees, and he starts washing the disciples' feet. It's crazy. Jesus, the name above all names that every other name would bow, every other tongue will confess that he's Lord. He gets down on his hands and his feet and tenderly washes the feet of every person there, every disciple there, including Judas. He gets to Peter. Do you know what Peter says? Can't let you wash my feet. And Jesus, he just has to be. We don't have details here, but he has to just be like, Peter, now is not the time. And so he says to Peter in that moment, hey, Peter, if I can't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, no, you don't need a bath. I just like, Peter, let me wash your feet. This is the way that Peter worked all the time. It's like, would you just be quiet and let Jesus talk in this moment? It's Jesus. Like, let me give you another. This is, this is the killer right here, okay? Um, Matthew 17 Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up on a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. We call this the transfiguration. And so you have Elijah who represents the prophets and Moses who represents the great law given to the Jewish people and Jesus standing in between them. So you have the great prophet, you have the great lawgiver, and you have Jesus the Messiah in between them. And what happens? Peter won't shut up. It says, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. And the disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. You guys, the Father had to interrupt Peter through a cloud and speak over him in this moment, because Peter just wouldn't stop running his mouth. This is who he is. I love it. Because 
we're not protected from that. We don't just get the glossy side of Peter or the hero side of Peter. We get the guy who denied knowing Jesus. We get the guy who cursed like a sailor when they said, hey, you were one of Jesus' disciples. We get the guy who ran away. But we also get what I'll talk about next week. We get the guy that Jesus saw Peter would become. Not just Simon, but he saw the rock. He saw the rock that Peter would be in the future. Something that even Peter couldn't see in himself, which is so, so beautiful to me. There's this Flora Cash song, and there's this specific lyric in it that says, I saw the part of you that only when you're older you will see too. That has stuck with me so clearly. Just that little lyric from a song, I saw the part of you that only when you're older you will see too. I hope you've had somebody in your life who has spoken that into you. You may very well not have. I hope you've had a coach who could see something in you that only when you're older you would see too. I hope you had a parent who saw something in you that only when you're older you might see too. But whether you have or you haven't, I promise that you have a God who sees something in you that only when you're older you will see too. Truly. Our culture wants to talk about identity if it's, as if it's an entirely inward process. That my search for identity is within. That I find it, and I'm the only one who can find it. There's some disagreement in the scientific community now because as they look at brain science and all the other stuff, they realize there's a lot of identity that comes from how we understand ourselves in the context of family, how we understand ourselves in the context of friend groups, that that actually has a lot of of influence into our identity. And so you may have, in your search for identity, you may feel like you are an incredibly shy person, and some of that may very well be true, but it also just may be the last 19 years of your life and the context in which you were at, that you, that's the person you had to be to be successful. Maybe you grew up in a family where anger wasn't allowed, and so you turned that all inside. And so you just rage on the inside, but you couldn't let that stuff out because it wasn't allowed to be seen. Or maybe you felt conflict, but conflict wasn't allowed to be a part of where you were at in your family. Or maybe you've rebelled against all of that, and that has become your identity where you're like, you know what, I'm the rebel. I will do my own thing, and I don't care what I was brought up in. I will just create, you guys, within Christianity, there is a different picture of Jesus looking at you and saying, you know, that journey isn't all on you. It's actually outside of you. The greatest meaning and purpose you will find in this world is not just turning inside. As a matter of fact, you might get very confused if that's the only thing you do. The God of the universe, much like Peter walking up to Jesus, may have an identity to speak over you a new name that only when you're older you will see too. We get a a glimpse in Matthew 16 of why Jesus said that. There's a moment with Peter there. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, Others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. In other words, the crowds are kind of confused as to whether Jesus is another John the Baptist or another prophet. And so Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? Guess who's first to speak? Simon Peter answers, 
you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We call that Peter's great confession. We model that at most of our baptisms, if you've noticed. And Jesus replied, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. It's this confession that Jesus is talking about that is the rock that he will build himself on. The rock that he will see. And you catch a glimpse here of him saying, hey, Simon, son of John, you're beginning to be Cephas, Peter, that person I saw from the very beginning. This is three years after that previous passage where he's introduced to Jesus for the very first time. Three years later, Jesus is like, hey, you're starting to get it. You're starting to be that person that I saw from the very beginning. We get a glimpse from Jesus in there as to his identity. So what is yours? What have you latched on to? Because again, from a secular humanism perspective, this question about belief, this question about purpose and meaning, this question about identity is completely and entirely up to you. And so maybe you've got something you've held on tight to. I do. I have stuff that I thought was really true about me until Jesus started pulling on some strings, and it was like, huh, I I might need to rethink that. I might need to submit that. I might need to understand that differently. I might need to collaborate with the God of the universe on who I am. But you guys, like I said at the very beginning, this whole character selection screen thing, you get to do that. I mean, you can, you can hold on to that with both hands. You can hold on tightly to this idea that this is who I am and I'm wired this way. But I don't believe you're truly going to find, if, if the God of the universe truly is real and I believe that he is, then he has so much a better view of that than you and I. And as I have, I, I didn't do it all at once, you guys. This has been a lifelong process of slowly giving those pieces over to God and watching him do things with those seeds that I, I just couldn't have done on my own. Are you willing to do that? Piece at a time? Say, God, will you speak into who I am? Will you speak into my new self? There's this picture in Revelation that I believe speaks to this. This beautiful passage says, I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Let me tell you how I interpret that. I think that one day God will hand me a stone with my real name, (laughs) my, my true identity, and it'll really make sense. To be like, you're right, God, my, I wasn't Ben. I was actually this. The same way that he looks at Peter and sa- or Simon and says, no, it's not Simon, it's Peter. I think Jesus looks at me and says, no, it's not Ben, it's this. And I will grow you into that if you will let me. And this image in Revelation is the fullness of that. God handing you your new name and saying, this is what I've been moving you toward all along. Will you let him move you toward that? If you're someone who has never been to church or you've never been around the Bible, this is part of the invitation. It truly is. If you've been around church your whole life, you guys, this is still the invitation to lay down those things that you're sure about yourself and say, God, will you examine this and help me understand who I am 
in your eyes. Will you speak that truth over me? Because what you believe changes the way you think, remember? What you think changes the way that you behave. It changes your actions, which completely transforms the consequences that you live in. So friend, if you come in here tonight and you're super beat up or you're caught in addiction or you're just like, there's, you're in a place where you're like, I, I don't even know if I understand who I am. Great. Well, you don't have to solve that problem tonight. The very first beginning of this is you saying, you know what, God, I hand this to you and you collaborate with me and me understanding that. Matthew 16 is the verse that we were just in, where that's where, that's where Peter says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know what Jesus says just after that, Matthew 16, 24 and 25? He says, if any of you wants to come after me, if any, if any of you wants to follow me or be my disciple, those are the different translations, you need to do three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is not a secular humanist point of view. He's saying, you need to give away your life. As a matter of fact, in the, narr- the very next verse, he says, if you want to find your life, in other words, if you are so intent on holding on, you're going to lose it. But those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. Our quest for identity as followers of Jesus is a whole different ballgame. I cannot wait in a week to show you where Peter ends up. I can't wait to show you the rock that he becomes. But he's not there yet, you guys. He's not there yet, and neither are we. But Jesus beckons us there if we'll let him take him, if, he'll, if we will let him take us there. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your picture for us um, is just not one that we have for ourselves. It's not one that we can understand in our own perspective of this world that's so limited. And Jesus, I know that uh, what I'm, I'm speaking tonight is a really good reminder for some who need to be brought back to that space of remembering who they are in you. And it may be a shock to the system of others. And Holy Spirit, I I pray that you'd speak to every soul in the room and you'd help us just take one step toward you. Lord, thank you for the gentle invitations that you gave to your disciples. Thank you for the invitation that you gave to Peter, actually that you gave to Simon, who would later become who you saw in him. Jesus, do that in us. We love you, Lord. We commit this to you and pray it in your name. Lead us, Jesus. Amen. listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.